this by saying, well, you know, if you can make more money living on welfare than you can working, then we need to get rid of the welfare. No, if you can make more money living on welfare, which is just bare minimum survival stuff, if you can make more money doing that than working, then there's a problem with the working. There's a problem with the, the amount of money that the people are paying in the jobs. Did I answer your question, Mike? Yes, you, you actually did. And okay, Thank, thanks a lot. It's good to hear from you. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, there's a there's quarter second delay here. Uh, hopefully, this will all get resolved when we get back in the studio in a couple of weeks when we're all fully vaccinated. Uh, my apologies, though, uh, Mike. I, I didn't realize you had something more to say. I just heard a, a fraction of it after I'd already pushed the button. Michelle in Van Nuys, California. Hey, Michelle, what's on your mind? Um, I just I did the accounting for a cancer charity here in Los Angeles, and I wanted to say that mm-hmm. they're already have been doing mRNA research and treatment for cancers for a number of years. Because I for, we we deal with USC Norris, UCLA Johnson, and City of Hope, and. We, I heard lectures more than five years ago from directly from the doctors. We'd have private lectures about the research they were doing. And because certain cancers um, adapt and change so frequently, they couldn't do anything by normal treatment because the cancer would keep coming back. And they were able to treat it by doing mRNA, um, um, using the, the, to bring in the things they needed to, uh, to um, combat the cancer and kill the cancer cells. That is spectacular. I, you know, I, I had heard that. I read one piece that said that this technology had been actually around for about 20 years, um, but it had always been considered kind of marginal and experimental. I read another piece suggesting that there were several of these kinds of vaccines that were being tested against cancers. I know uh, my, my wife, Louise, after she had breast cancer, um, she volunteered for a, uh, a, a vaccine, a cancer vaccine study. Um, they, you know, the kind of the downside, the unfortunate thing is they never told her uh, what, you know, even after the study was over and the study failed, uh, the, the, the vaccine didn't appear to be effective, but um, uh, they never told her what the vaccine was. So we don't know if it was mRNA or what, but um, yeah, they, that's, that's good. Go ahead, Michelle. Well, I was going to say, yeah, because like I said, they've been doing it for treatment, especially for a lot of the blastomas and things that, that just adapt mm-hmm. so well. And, and uh, is that, anybody can is that the one that they're using now for the for the glioblastoma, the, the brain cancer that killed uh, Ted Kennedy and, and uh, Joe Biden's son, uh, Bo? Um, I don't think it was from those facilities. I think it was from another location. But they're all doing they all talk to each other at all the different facilities. And what you can any all of them, they want to promote their their research. So you can always go on, you know, go online and I'm sure they're going to have a list of doctors that are doing a number of different kinds. And if, if, if somebody ever does get cancer, it, it behooves them to go and check out um, if they're near a local facility to find out if there's any trials or research going on that they may be a candidate to enter into it. Right, right. Although, you know, yeah. there's an upside and a downside to that because you, uh, you might I, uh, well, a, a friend of the family, shall we what? say, um, had yeah. a, a cancer and they were doing a trial and the trial killed him. I mean, you know, they, they tried an experimental drug on him and he was dead for, you know, uh, within a week. Um, and, oh, yeah, yeah. No, he, uh, you know, yeah, that was the point at which they were just starting to figure out, oops. Um, but he was going to die anyway. I mean, you know, he was he was months from dying and instead it just became a much shorter period of time. But, um, yeah, you know, there's, but there's yeah, I'm, I'm all in favor of these trials. Uh, you know, our family, like I said, Louise did it. And and yeah. 
Yeah, there was a, one little girl that say. had one of the blastomas. Uh, there was a young girl who was, you know, she was a childhood cancer of blastomas, and she had, uh, she then became a spokesman for for all of this because she was like six, you know, six years out from having any sign of the cancer after doing this, uh, being part of uh, this, um, getting into this treatment. So, so like I said, there's there's it's it's. That's There's great. a lot of things. I think out there you know, sort of like the space program brought us all these, brought us all these. Yeah, I'm with you, and I think like like the space program brought us all these technological leaps, and you know the and and I don't know if it coincided with or it helped encourage things like the transition from transistors to integrated circuits to to large scale integration, um, you know, all these other kinds of technological advances. I suspect that this virus, this coronavirus, this unique virus that the human race has never been exposed to, that we're now having to come up with um, new and innovative ways to deal with, is going to spark a medical uh, innovation that probably I won't live long enough to, to see, you know, an actual, hey, you know, you've got so-and-so cancer here, let me give you a shot, you'll be just fine, and we'll deal with it the way that we deal with it, like, like antibiotics and bacterial infections. But uh, I, I, I see it as a, I, I, I'm very hopeful, let me, let me put it that way. Michelle, thank you. Thanks for that detail. That's, uh, it's always great to have the, uh, you know, the, the, the actual details of things. Betty in Chicago. Hey, Betty, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I want you to clarify something for me. Betty, you are Early... on the air. Okay. Earlier you spoke of the uh, vaccine and the companies that have the patent to the vaccine. And I think you, I think you said also that that means that poor countries who didn't have the fundings uh, wouldn't be able to get the vaccine. So the question I ask is, if this if this virus is so detrimental and it's killing people, and we've got to get vaccinated to the point where they're giving it free here. And then they get a, we allow them to, uh, I don't know what the law is, to get a patent on the vaccine. So what are we saying, that poor countries uh, that can't afford it will die out? Or uh, uh, if, if the U.N. doesn't get the money to pay for it, then how dangerous is this vaccine? I mean, this virus, if we're letting countries that can't afford to get vaccinated um, uh, uh, do without. Uh, did, I, did I get that wrong? Yeah, this is no, no. You got it right, Betty. This is the great um, moral conundrum that the world is facing right now, and you know, a number of people have have spoken out on it. I, I just I'm looking at my app here, and I'm seeing that we've got about a four second delay. My apologies. We'll we'll fix this at the top of the next hour. Um, but um, the the it's it's not that the country doesn't have the patent. It's that the companies are not. Um, allowing other companies to make the same drug because they're saying we've got the patent, we're the only company that can make it. Um, there are lots and lots of vaccine manufacturers all around the world, and these vaccines are not such radical new technologies that an existing vaccine factory couldn't be converted to make a, a COVID vaccine. But because they hold the patents, they hold the ability to prevent other people from making what they're making. And, and that's why... On the one hand, there's a call for, okay, if we're going to continue this patent system, 
that has basically become a giant subsidy. I mean, uh, when uh, uh, when the country when this country was founded, you know, 240 years ago, um, uh, patents were a possibility. They put it into law in the 1790s that patents lasted for three years. Um, you know, we've now now you got patents in the last 17 years, 20 years. You can renew patents. You got trademarks like you know the mouse, the Mickey Mouse thing. It's like 90 years or something like that. They become basically subsidies for giant corporations. And so, uh, you know, one one group is saying we need to just blow up the patent laws. We need to have it, you know, basically an international body that does this, or we need to get the largest countries in the world who are kind of enforcing this, mostly the United States, Germany, the United Kingdom, uh, Russia, and China, to get those countries together and say, okay, we're going to change the way that we deal with uh, patent laws, at least with regard to vaccines, or at least with regard to vaccines that have to do with pandemics. Uh, that's one strategy. The other strategy is to say, okay, these companies own the patents. They're expecting to make $50 billion in profits over the next couple of years. Um, poor countries can't afford to buy the, buy the uh, vaccines from them at the prices they're charging. So we will simply give the companies the money. They'll give us the vaccines. We'll hand them off to the poor countries. Those are the two kinds of options that I'm hearing right now. And I think it's, a, it's an important debate. Betty, thank you for the call. Thanks for asking the question. I think it's a very important debate for us all to be having and a conversation for us all to be having. And, you know, I hope that, you know, moving forward, we can do more about it and with it. We'll be right back. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your calls in just a moment. 45 minutes past the hour here on the Tom Hartman program. Helping you win the water cooler wars. back. Andrea in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, you are on the air. Well, Tom, I guess it's the question should be to laminate or not to laminate. The nurse at the hospital where I got my two shots okay. told me not to la- told me not to laminate it because and this was in early March that most likely we were going to get boosters and they were to be entered in onto this card and possibly we were going to have to have those some kind of showing on those if we ever went to get on an airplane it would be valuable and likewise people that i know have just went ahead and laminated their social security card mine was over 20 years old when i had to go to the social security building for some questions and i went there and as i went to pull it out of my wallet space there where it was I apologized to the garden I had to show it and I had I said to him you know this is so rough and edge I think I'm going to laminate it he said ma'am that's against federal law it's right on the front of your card and I have an old one really and it's wow well if you have an older card I, I don't know about the new ones but if you have an older card it was right on the right. front of mine yeah, it shocked me too because all of my friends have already yeah. laminated there. <laughs> so it's against federal law. Right. right. <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to here. let everybody of course, know. Yeah, it's against federal law. I mean, there's a lot of things it's against federal law to do. You know. Yeah. Uh, you know, Andrea, I'm, I'm, 
I, I thought about this, you know, because I, I had my, when I first got my, sh my first shot, I, I had two shots because I had Pfizer. And I got the first shot and I stuck the card in my pocket. I keep my, uh, my credit cards and my driver's license in my right front uh, jeans pocket. So they're just always there. And I never have to think about them. I don't carry a wallet. They, they don't occupy a lot of space. So I just stuck yeah. the card in there. And when I went back for the second shot, I pulled the card out, and it was all bent up, and the edges were starting mm -hmm. to get ripped off because, you know, everything else in there is a plastic credit card, you know, or my driver's right. license. And, and so I thought, okay, I need to laminate this. It, it does seem, if there's a booster, like they could put the sticker on top of the laminate. I mean, I, I've got a change of address sticker on my driver's license, and it's just a paper sticker. Uh, wouldn't that be possible? Gosh, I don't know. They always give you that little sticker. You know, I've been vaccinated. Could they carry it a little bit further and make it more legal? Mm -hmm. Possibly so. But it was the nurse's advice at the hospital yeah. when she gave me both shots. She said, take a picture of the front and the back, right. and then you always carry your phone with you. Mm -hmm. Then if you need to show it, she said, you could pretty soon the grocery stores might say, do you have both your shots, ma'am? Well, yes, I do. Well, how do I have proof? Well, here it is. Right. It's in my right. cell phone. And I thought that was the best yeah. thing to yeah. do. Yeah, well, so and, that's and that... I, I agree. And that's something I haven't done yet. And thank you for the reminder. I will do it this afternoon after we get off the air, as I have not taken a picture of my vaccine card and put it in my phone, uh, both sides of it. Uh, in fact, I haven't taken a picture of either side of it. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Louise hasn't either. Um, and we both need to do that. Andrea, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's, what an information-filled day it is, right? It's just a wonderful day. Um, it's a beautiful Friday. It's, it's, it's the first day I haven't been wearing my arm in a sling, too. So I think I'm, I, I think my uh, my frozen shoulder uh, or whatever it is, uh, torn torn rotator cuff, uh, seems to be getting better. So I'm in a particularly good mood. We'll be back. rant today it's usually published over at hartmanreport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free check it out hartmanreport.com hey we have a new video out about the 1776 commission remember this commission that donald trump put together to uh explain the history of america uh, to have true principles because history is being distorted by things like the new york times 1619 report you know no seriously this this is what donald trump said that you know the this we're engaging now in revisionist history by highlighting the history of slavery in the United States. And so he put together this bizarre commission. And now, in the state of South Carolina, Senator Dwight Loftus and others have introduced legislation requiring that Trump's commission, which had no historians on it, 18 people, not a single historian, that that commission's findings be taught as history in the public schools in South Carolina. It's absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, it, here, it, it's like they want to take us back to the 1930s. Check it out at TomHartman.com. Tom Harbin here with you, 
and uh, Bob in San Jose, California. And again, my apologies. I'm seeing that uh, our latency now is up to about two seconds here. So uh, we're just going to have to survive it for the next uh, 10 minutes until I can reset things at the top of the hour. Uh, but Bob, what's on your mind today? Well, uh, I have to say, you and I are, are both hams, and we understand this, so we can use the word over. <laughs> How about that? Right, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And and uh, and thank you, Bob. Yeah, WA8MWL here. So what's on your mind? Okay, yeah, I'm WA6WHT. Um, no, what I was going to say is, what happens to these the people that have been in the military, very young, like age 18, and they're trained to kill uh, because that's one of the things the military works on. And then they're deployed to a place like Afghanistan or, or Iraq, and they get basically PTSD. And they come out of the military, and they're looking for a job. And one of the places where they could end up is police departments, law enforcement. So now they're in something that comes across all of a sudden looking like a, a place they've been before. And they reach for the gun because that's the condition thing that the military did to them when they were when they were in basic yeah. training and right after that. And I'm wondering if maybe the answer is we start screening people coming into the law enforcement for PTSD. Now, whether that PTSD is is military induced or not, it still can trigger this flashback phenomenon. And suddenly they're back in, in the combat thing and, and uh, shooting to survive. Yeah, fight or flight. Over. Um, you, you, thank you, Bob. Yeah, you, you, you raise, actually, I think this whole issue raises a couple of really important issues. The first is, and, and this was a, a common phrase, I, I, I recall hearing uh, Tom Hayden say this back in the 60s. Um, you know, the guy who wrote the Port Huron uh, statement and, and kind of started SDS and, and later in his life became a, a good friend of mine and Louise's before he passed away. Um, Tom Hayden made the comment once that the war always comes home. Yeah, every war always comes home. You, you, and and the, the fact that we are taking young people and teaching them to violate the most fundamental human instinct, which is don't kill other people, don't harm other people. We're teaching them to violate that. We're desensitizing them to that. We're training them to do that. We're giving them technology to do that. And then when they come home, we're just expecting them to just go, poof, I'm normal again, and I don't even remember any of that stuff, is a fantasy. And so, number one, I think that we need to be much more careful about the kinds of military involvements that we get into because we are damaging our young people or we are at the very least changing our young people by running them through these things, uh, particularly when we put them into real-life world, you know, real-world war situations. So there's that, and, and that's an issue that nobody ever talks about that really needs to be discussed. The corollary to that is the veterans who are coming back with PTSD who are not being diagnosed, who are not being treated, who are not being given any help, and that's a, a, a national scandal. And then, of course, the third part, what you directly brought up, Bob, is what happens when you get one of, the, one of these folks who has the, uh, a veteran's experience and has PTSD and has learned how to kill, and you give them a gun and you send them into a neighborhood where the people look very different from them or behave different from them or they view those people as, as – or they view themselves essentially as an occupying force – 
and and how do you deal with that? And obviously that you know there's there's other ways to deal with that, like requiring people to live in the neighborhoods that they police and and getting cops out of cars and on the streets and things like that, but also filtering out the PTSD. And then there's the fourth issue that we don't want to be discriminating against our vets, particularly if they you know I mean somebody you know putting your life on your li- on the line for your country. I-, I realize there are some people who do it just because it's the only way to escape poverty, but there are a lot of people who join the military because they view it as a noble calling, a- as a way of giving back to their country. And the last thing we want to do is to say, oh, yeah, no, we, we view you as potentially you know defective or dangerous or deadly. And so there are all these competing narratives, and none of them have formed any kind of a complete or coherent whole and I am hopeful that I, and I have not read the details of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I don't know if it addresses any of these issues. And, I, and I'm, I'm frankly not all that familiar with exactly where the Biden administration is at with regard to the VA and veterans issues going forward. But um, all that said, I am hopeful that this collection of issues, this constellation of issues, um, and including the need for us to stop being the world's policemen and the and the need for us to stop involving ourselves in wars and the need for the entire planet itself, you know, to go back to the old League of Nations rhetoric that, that you know, never happened over Republican opposition. But, you know, the League of Nations was the idea that that, uh, you know, we are we are here and the United Nations to a large extent today. We are here to prevent wars because wars are the ultimate failure of diplomacy, the the ultimate failure of human interaction. Wars are not some successful thing. Wars are not some noble thing. Wars are failures. And so, Bob, 73s to you. Thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from a fellow ham. And uh, and thanks for giving me a chance to go off on that rant. We're going to check in with Dean Obadala, Sirius XM, on the other side of this break. He's got a great article out. And, uh, and, and we'll continue with Anything Goes Friday. You're listening to Tom Hartman. These companies support the Tom Hartman program. They are HelloFresh, the number one meal kit delivery service. More information at HelloFresh.com. Code Tom. Seabeat Distillery for sleeping and pain relief. More info at cbdistillery.com, code TOM. Annie's Kit Club's creativity delivered right to your door. More info is available at annieskitclubs.com slash Tom. Easy Flow, personal air filtration system. Fresh air anywhere. More info at easyflowusa.com, code TOM. Masterclass with world-class instructors. More info at masterclass.com slash Hartman. And Dinovite, only the best all-natural pet supplements. More info at dinovite.com.
today is Jailbreak Out of History by Butch Lee. Uh, this is from the first chapter, Break out of, Jailbreak Out of History, Harriet. Um, focus on Amazons, about why we deal with real women as myths, girls who never really existed. Yet and again, all are around us and that we can't bring ourselves to see. Because seeing through white men's eyes is about non-vision of ourselves. So let's deal with a real Amazon. Think about Harry and Tubman. Take six months. In fact, take a year and think. Break it on down. What does it mean to be the most famous new African woman in U.S. history? What does it mean to be stuck in that lie? What's the meaning of being famous while being hidden and disfigured and dissed? Let's jailbreak Harriet Tubman out of white history and place her in Amazon and new African her story. Her story. Her people's story. Harriet Tubman's life is a live weapon placed in our minds, showing us what it means to be an Amazon which is why the capitalist patriarchy has forbidden us to touch on it for so long. In this, maybe for the first time, we can see Amazons as a future force in a clash of peoples and nations, not as myths, but as players in the whole difficult course of world politics. We can also appreciate the bittersweet tang of reality as the peeling away of layers of propaganda and disfigurement which have hidden Harriet from us exposes how much we assume and how little we have known. New African women have already pointed out the significant pattern of Harriet's exclusion. Cultural critic Bell Hooks said recently, I mean, if we could recover Ida B. Wells and Harriet Tubman to the extent that we've recovered, say, Zora Neale Hurston, I think that's an important contrast because people want to bury that revolutionary black female history. Her historian Deborah Gray White connects Harriet's treatment to a larger pattern in the mainstream history of slavery in which black women, quote, were reduced to insignificance and largely ignored, end quote. In examining the influential historian Stanley Elkins, she points out, quote, that Elkins seems to omit women altogether was accentuated by his description of slaves who he, whom he identified as part of an American underground, those who never succumbed to Samboism. Among those mentioned were Gabriel, who led the revolt of 1820, Denmark Vesey, leading spirit of the 1822 plot at Charleston, and Nat Turner, an omission conspicuous by its absence, was Harriet Tubman. If Elkins had really been thinking of slaves of both sexes, he would hardly have forgotten this woman, who became widely known as the Moses of her people. End of quote. Patriarchal capitalisms, which only want Amazons to be exotic myths about forgotten ages, have hidden Harriet Tubman in her own fame. They both trivialize and exceptionalize her. These are tools of oppressor culture. The stripped-down and censored version of her life is told in elementary schools all over the U.S. empire. So much so that everyone thinks they know her story already, although they don't. Harriet Tubman was born in slavery in Maryland around 1820. She escaped to the North when she was 29, but kept returning secretly to the South again and again to help other slaves escape. For this, she became known as Moses. True statements. But by limiting her... It becomes clever propaganda against her and against her people. Where patriarchy has been unable to deny that women do significant things, it denies the full meaning of what we do by trivializing them. Mary Daly, feminist philosopher, traces the enormity of what patriarchy has done to us. In ancient Greece, the goddess Hecate, also known as Artemis and Diana, was sometimes known as Trivia and represented by a three-faced statue. That was also the name used for the intersection of three paths, which in many old cultures were the sites of mystical power. She writes in Gynecology, quote, 
In light of the cosmic significance of the term trivia as the crossing of the three roads and of the goddess who bears this name, contemporary meaning of the term in English should be examined. The English term, which according to Merriam-Webster is derived from the Latin trivium or crossroads, is, is defined as common, ordinary, commonplace, of little worth or importance, insignificant, flimsy, minor, or slight. Of course, according to patriarchal values, that which is commonplace is of little worth. For in a competitive hierarchical society, scarcity is intrinsic to worth. Thus, gold is more important than fresh air, and consequently, we are forced to live in a world in which gold is easier to find than pure air. End quote. So to trivialize Harriet Tubman, the capitalist patriarchy, pictures her as an idealized woman by their definition, who makes a life of helping others. Thus, her deeds are squeezed into women's assigned maternal role as nurturer, helper, and rescuer of men then go on to do important things. But Harriet wasn't repping Mother Teresa. She wasn't even any kind of civilian at all. She was a combatant, a guerrilla, a warrior carrying pistol and rifle, fighting in her people's long war for freedom, a war that rocked the foundations of African society, Amer excuse me, of American society, and that has never gone away. Think about what it means to be called Moses, which was the code name other new Africans gave her and which became Harriet's famous warrior name in the anti-slavery underground. When we check out the Bible, we can see that Moses was a ruthless visionary, someone who forced the boldest changes and risks upon his people so that they could survive, who led them out of captivity. To put it simply, Moses was a leader in a time of war. So, too, was Harriet Tubman. The book, Jailbreak Out of History by Butch Lee. goes Friday, but first I want to uh, invite in Dean Obadala. He's the host of the Dean Obadala Show, weekdays 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Progress, channel 127, where you are listening to me right now, if you're listening to Sirius XM. Uh, the hashtag or the Twitter handle is SXM Progress. DeanofRadio.com is his website, and Dean Obadala, O-B-E-I-D-A-L-L-A-H, is uh, Dean's Twitter handle. Uh, Dean, welcome back. Tell me about this new war that the Republican Party has declared on protesters. Well, I think, it, Tom, first, thanks for having me on. I think it's just a new front of their war on democracy. The first one was the old vote war on the ability to vote, making it harder to vote primarily for black and brown people. Now they've expanded their second front in this war on democracy to include a war on free speech. They've introduced 80, 81 so-called anti-protest bills, as we call them, in 34 states during the 2021 legislative session so far, and some have become law. And the whole goal, really, the, the true essence here, is to stifle free speech of those they don't agree with. Because the whole reason for these laws are the Black Lives Matter protesters last year, even though as Washington Post quantified, 96, 97% were peaceful, no property damage. It, the truth doesn't matter to the right. What matters is pure power. So the latest thing is to prevent Americans from uniting, 
and freely assembling, as we're guaranteed on the Constitution, and expressing ourselves, they are literally making it a crime for peaceful protest by either, such as if you block traffic peacefully, it's a felony. That's what they're proposing in certain places now, and in Florida, or raising it from a misdemeanor to a felony. The whole goal is to stifle free speech. And, you know, this just Monday on Florida, Ron DeSantis, governor, uh, the governor there and the Trump buddy, signed into a law, a law that the ACLU says criminalizes peaceful protest and harkens back to Jim Crow. So you get a sense what's really going on here. Yeah, so the, the, the law that Ron DeSantis signed, and this was, you know, at the, at the, at the peak of the Chauvin trial, so nobody was paying attention to yep. what he was doing. Exactly. Um, yep. uh, this, if I, I'm looking at this piece, uh, and I should have mentioned this in my introduction to you, that you wrote a piece titled, We're Not Blind, Anti-Protest Bills Are Actually Anti-BLM Bills, and uh, it's over at the MSNBC website, msnbc.com slash opinion, et cetera, and uh, uh, by Dean Obadala. Um, Dean, you, you write that um, this law in, in, uh, in Florida makes it mm-hmm. a second-degree felony publish, punishable by up to 15 years in prison for damaging Confederate monuments or the Confederate flag, uh, creating basically shrines to white supremacy, and also makes it a felony for being part of a protest that becomes violent even if you have nothing to do with the violence. I mean, this is... This, these are huge stretches. It is. And the idea of, look, Seth, there's already a lawsuit against this. The SLU and others are fighting. The idea of being so almost like felony murder. I mean, they're expanding it that way, where in the commission of a felony, you commit a murder. Everyone involved in that is charged with murder. What they want to do is anybody involved in a protest, if someone a mile up from you commits acts of violence, that somehow, arguably, as the ACLU's pointing this out, you can at least arguably be charged with crimes under this new law. So it, the goal is a chilling effect. They don't want people to go to the streets to protest things that the GOP does not approve of. It's that simplistic. It's really, if you're not going to vote for them, they want to make it hard or not impossible to vote. If you're going to say things they don't like, they want to silence you. The GOP is no longer a political party. Party. It's a white nationalist authoritarian movement that has now embraced essence of fascism with the January 6th violence that the GOP has not denounced uh, in one voice. In fact, they defended Donald Trump in the latest polls. 80% of Republican rank and file support Donald Trump. That's a recent poll two weeks ago. They saw the January 6th attack. You cannot tell me that they're not at least affirming that they're down with the violence. We're, we're dealing, yeah. Tommy, you, we've discussed it before. We're in a new world here. We have the Democratic Party adhering to Democratic values. We have a GOP that has long been trending toward authoritarianism, now in full embrace of it. And they're counting on the courts to save them in that maybe the part of this law will be upheld. But their goal is, until a court decides, a chilling effect on people going out to protest because they fear being prosecuted. Yeah, there was a study I, I, I talked about it on the program a, a week or two ago that was done in collaboration uh, with Harvard and and a European university. I'm forgetting which one right now. Um, I, I think it might have been one of the Scandinavian countries. And they looked at um, over 160 governments around the world and over 1,200 political parties, if my memory serves me correctly, and I think it does. And what they found was that while the Democratic Party in the United States falls squarely within the mainstream of traditional political parties in functioning democracies, you know, the kind of political party you expect to see in Australia or in Canada or in Germany or in France, the the Republican Party has 
is so far outside the mainstream that the closest party to it was uh, Viktor Orban's Fidesz party in Hungary, which has basically taken over the media, has stacked the courts, has has ended democracy, uh, ended all dissent, uh, you know, uh, rigged the elections. I mean, or uh, Erdogan's, uh, I think it's it's called the ISP, or perhaps you know the name mm-hmm. of uh, Erdogan's party in Turkey, that the GOP has become no longer a legitimate political party. They are an outlier white nationalist movement, um, basically. And uh, I, I guess the and, and they're having some success here with these laws. It's kind of ironic that it was just a decade ago that the people who were out on the streets protesting were the Tea Party guys, right? They were the Republicans saying we don't you know, we don't want no stinking Obamacare. Um, but uh, but nonetheless. I'm curious your take on this. I mean, you, you have a, uh, uh, in, in some ways a, a 30,000 foot view, um, being Muslim, being a talk show host, being a comedian, being in the media, you've been around for a while. Um, I have tremendous respect for your perspective and your, and your, and your, um, uh, your, your overview on these things, your ability to, to synthesize all this information. Do you think that this is the new the new authoritarianism that is going to be the new standard for America? Or do you think that what we're looking at is the last gasp, which this is, this tends to be my opinion, but I may be real wrong on this. I I just wrote a book about this, uh, that this is the last gasp of the old Confederacy, essentially of a white nationalist movement. There's a lot there, Tom. The one thing I will say for those who say, well, demographic change is coming and that, non-white people will be a majority, so hence white supremacy uh, will end or at least be marginalized more. I just want to remind people that, uh, you know, in the 1850s and 1860s, the white people at the time, the nativists, and they hated the Irish and German Italian immigrants who were coming. Well, after a while, they realized they needed them, and they expanded the definition of whiteness to include them. So what you have is a likely scenario where what we view as white now will expand to include conservatives who aren't white so that the white nationalists, white supremacists can keep their power. So I don't think it's be as easy as that. There are people who aspire to be white because whiteness has certain benefits to it. At least that's the way it's perceived by people. And they, there is white privilege. We understand that. That's part of it. The second part, this authoritarianism by the GOP, unless they were to consistently lose elections, they're going to embrace this even more. They are desperate. They are fearful of change. They're, they're, they're demographic change specifically, and that they view our society as a zero-sum game, that if a black or brown person achieves something, they believe it's not just good for the black or brown person, it's bad for white people. Now, only six, about 60% of white people voted for Donald Trump, so there's over 40% voted for Joe Biden, so it's not monolithic, not all white people by any stretch, imagination, but there's a chunk there. And, you know, you look at this law, it's like in Minneapolis, they, last week the state senator Steve Osmick if you were convicted of any illegal conduct, you would lose student loans, food stamps, and rent assistance. Now, that won't become law. There's a Democratic governor, but if they have a Republican governor, that'll be a law someplace else. This is their attack yeah. on free speech. It is crazy. And, and Dean, my apologies. We have I, we have to have hard breaks here on the show. So, uh, But thank you so much for dropping by. Dean Obadala, deanofradio.com on Sirius XM. Uh, my friend, Dean, thank you. Take care. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We will be back. It's 15 minutes past the hour. Stick around.
welcome back. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, how are you? What's up? I'm fine, Tom. I feel much better, and I'm glad to know that you're feeling better. Good. Yeah, step by step. I'm still in pain, but, you know, step by step. Yeah, I've been there, done that, both shoulders. Anyway, um, what I called about is, of course, having the police shoot young black men and women and kill them is a major problem here. But if we're going to put a stop to it, everybody needs to take a good look at their city government. You have to know who your city councilman is. What district do you live in? Who is your county commissioner? What is your mayor's uh, objective? What is your city budget? How are they spending your tax dollars? These are the things that people need to understand, and they need to start attending their city council meetings. These are, this is a public meeting. You can attend this. Your city budget is public record. You can get a copy of it and read it and figure out where does your money go. Also, you need to look at your county commission. How much money are they putting into schools, um, and where, where does it go? And then your state government. Who is your state representative in your state house? What is his beliefs? What is his agenda? Your state senator. All of these people are up for re-election next year. Here in Alabama, we have, we've had a traditional window in November, the first couple weeks, to get people on the ballot. That's six months from now, people. Who do you want to run for office? You've got to raise enough money to pay the application fee to get on the ballot. Then you've got to raise enough money to get the person's name out there, their face out there, their platform out there. If you want change in this country, it means everybody works hard and gets it done, or we are done. That's just the way it is. And you have to know who is running and why they're running. You know, right now, there's a big fight going on in our state house over pr private prisons. The company that was going to build us two new wonderful prisons has backed out. Yeah, there's a big fight going on over the lottery and whether or not we're going to ha allow the casinos here to have tables for poker and roulette. How many people are paying attention? We're about to get stuck with the entire cost of converting from coal to natural gas by Alabama Power. They want an increase to cover everything down to the last nut and bolt. And we've already been paying an increase to cover the cost of cleaning up coal ash ponds, and I have yet to hear a report on the first pond being completely cleaned up. We've paid that now for two years, and most people don't know it. That's a public service commission. One of those people will be up for election next year. People don't know these things because they're too busy working too many hours because they can't even earn enough money to save and buy a house. Instead, they're paying Well, rent. also, we don't have local news anymore, Norma. No, we don't. We have a feel-good stuff. And, you know, like this weekend, there's going to be an arts and crafts show here, and there's going to be something there, and you can go do this, and you can go do that, and you can be happy. But meanwhile, what is going on in your government, your city government, your county government, your school board, your state house? What's going on in, in uh, Washington, D.C.? We're going to have Shelby is retiring, and supposedly our representative Mo Brooks is going to run. Lord save us. You know? Yeah. yeah. Wake up, I'm people. I'm with you. Norma, thank you. Thank you so much for the call. You know, one of my uh, my first job in radio news was every morning at 6 a.m. I'd go down to the Lansing City, City Hall and go through the police blotter. 
right? I interviewed members of the city council. In fact, Louise used to go with me. We interviewed Jerry Graves, the old mayor there. They just don't do that anymore. opening rant today it's usually published over at hartmanreport.com where you can read it and share it with your friends for free check it out hartmanreport.com ask a boomer what it was like going to college back in the 60s and 70s and whether they had to go into debt to do it and odds are they'll tell you that they didn't not only didn't have to go into debt in fact college was free in california until ronald reagan became governor uh, not only did they not have to go into debt but you know you could pretty much work your way through college just with a part-time job that is very much no longer the case. Only 8% of millennials and Gen Xers have never had a student loan. This is a, an, a crushing burden on, on these two generations, and it's time to clean it up. And when Americans were asked, what do you think? Should we just wipe the slate clean? Should we get rid of all this student debt? 60% of Americans said yes. And then, of course, the corollary of that would be, and then let's make college free, at least state colleges and, and community colleges. There's a whole video about this over at TomHartman.com for supporters of our programming. Check it out there. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, anything goes Friday, picking up your phone calls. And Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind today? How you doing, Tom? Um, I'd like Good. to before I say what I, I'd like to address um, something earlier from Dean. And um, mm-hmm. as far as I live in the state of Florida, so whatever DeSantis, you know, satanic governor satanic does, it does affect me and my family and you know my community. So I just remember someone with a gun walking in D.C. to a Black Lives um, um, protest, and I remember him getting killed by the police. I remember, I think the police officer drove up to him or something like that and shot him. So that's why I don't think it's a good idea that we go armed to a protest. We should have, just the same way you had all of these AGs um, that was Republican and came out against Obamacare and sued us, you know, I just think the Democrats got to stop their game. Second of all, um, the most important thing I'm calling about is I'm about to cry, man. Um, I just think that Navalny is going to die. And the same... People who taught Ronald Reagan and how great he was with the Cold War and bringing the Russian to his knees, they're not saying anything to Putin because they're already in bed with Putin. I'm talking about the Republicans and the conservatives. They're not saying sure. anything. And it's up to us as Democrats. We need heroic people right now. We don't need people that's, that's you know, that they're scared of their own shadows. We need people to stand up because once you do this, once you let Navalny die, and we don't have no, and we don't enforce no sanctions or anything like that, it seems like whatever Russia does is punishing their people. Whatever China does is punishing their people. These Republicans are trying to do it to us too. And another thing that's crazy uh, on the, on the Hill the other day, um, they were they had um, hearings about you know fossil fuel companies getting subsidies, which should stop immediately. How come Chevron? It's some way in bed with the coup in Miramar. With the military. Yeah, I saw that last night on Rachel's show. And it's so amazing. So we're basically subsidizing the murder, the murder of innocent young kids. Yeah, the Rohingya. 
you know, just because you have a natural gas deal that you want to protect Chevron, I'm sick and tired of this. And Republicans, Manchin better get in line because as far as I'm concerned, if I was in the Senate, everything that was going to West Virginia, I'd block it if I was a Democrat. I would try to make sure I make him suffer just because he's trying to make us up. And there's no way you're going to get Manchin. If you look at his record, he's a, he's a, he's a Democrat in name only. And you got to tell me, you can't tell me that there's somebody else that, that can't run as a Democrat in West Virginia. And I would just point back to point back to when we had that epidemic with the opioids. So many people died in his state, you know, and he didn't give a damn because he didn't try hard enough. And he and um, basically, I know they are as backwards as they can be um, in West Virginia with their politics. But I think another thing that saved us in the civil rights movement was the, the um, FDR and his and his plan. You know, he lived. That, that we have to, to 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 go ahead, forget forget all about the noise and pass minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. Let's get people with jobs in this country. And you will see the tension lower. It's been proven yeah, before. You're absolutely right. You know yeah, we've seen it before in the, in the history of the United States. No, I'm, I'm totally with you, Charles. There's a lot there to digest. I, I, the Navalny thing in particular, uh, if he dies, this is going to be an international crisis, not just an American crisis. Um, Europe is going to probably get involved in this. I was very glad to see that Putin is pulling his troops back from the border of Ukraine. That had me very, very nervous. Um, but I think he's running scared. He's got a major protest movement on his hands, and if Navalny dies, somebody is going to step into that space. There will be a huge political vacuum there because, because you know, he's increase, uh, Putin is increasingly unpopular there. Um, so we're just going to have to keep an eye on it. Charles, you are the recipient today of an EasyFlow personal air filtration system, fresh air anywhere. More information is available at EasyFlowUSA.com, code TOM, T-H-O-M. So, Charles, I'm going to put you on hold, and Joyce will get your information so we can get one to you. Thanks so much for the call and for all the great points that you made. Um, Charles is on line three, uh, uh, Joyce. Simon in Aberdeen, New Jersey. Hey, Simon, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you? Good. Uh, Sunday night. I want to bring something up. I called you on this once before. Uh, I can prove to you that free trade is a complete lie. I, okay. but I need to... Respect. There have been contingent moments in which the very existence of our nation was up for grabs. This is the essence of crisis. The world turned upside down. The known replaced by the unknown. Panic reigning as people struggle to maintain their balance and shifts in the very ground beneath their feet. It came with a speed and ferocity that left men dazed, New York Times correspondent Elliot Bell wrote of Wall Street's catastrophic collapse in October of 1929. Quote, the market seemed like an incentive insensate thing that was wreaking a wild and pitiless revenge upon those who thought to master it, end quote. Crises are contagious, spreading like viruses from one realm to another. It's not without reason that the word crisis was associated with medical conditions and health scares in the 19th century. Each of the periods under consideration in this book were less a singular crisis than a set of interlinked crises. A political crisis could trigger an economic panic, which in turn could intensify social conflict, and so on. As these pandemics spread through the body politic, crisis itself was normalized, becoming an almost accepted characteristic of an age. Just as foreign crises have spread to the United States, domestic ones have spilled across its borders, unsettling foreign countries and peoples, 
as well as reconfiguring America's connections to the world. Consider the fateful winter of secession that followed the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln. The crisis over slavery that divided the Union into warring sections that led to a series of sharp reversals in America's position in the global system. The foreign capital that had rushed into the roaring American economy in the preceding decades suddenly began to flee. Indeed, more capital left the United States in 1860 to 1862 than came into it. Also a once-in-a-century occurrence. One of the world's most valuable commodities and America's largest export, southern cotton, was confined to the ports of the Confederacy as a result of Richmond's ill-fated diplomatic strategy, leading to unemployment and social unrest in the British textile town of Lancashire. The most unexpected reversal was how the national security that, that the United States had attained after the war against Mexico in the 1840s was suddenly imperiled, with European powers encroaching once again upon the Western Hemisphere. Meanwhile, the Confederate emissaries across the Atlantic in search of alliance were in search of alliance with Britain. Our country, Secretary of State William Seward lamented in early 1861, after having expelled all European powers from the continent, now threatened to relapse into an aggravated, aggravated form of its colonial experience, and like India, Turkey, China, and Italy, become the theater of transatlantic intervention and rapacity. A wider view of American history that looks beyond the nation's borders brings into focus not only the migration patterns, economic flows, and international rivalries that have connected the United States to the world, but also those rare moments in which the very in existence of the nation was in question. Perhaps none was more pregnant with implications than the autumn of 1877, when the fate of the Patriots' bid for independence hung in the balance. Having proclaimed their independence to the world the previous 4th of July, their cause had stalled on the battlefield and in the diplomatic courts of the old world. I think the game is pretty near up, Washington privately confessed at year's end. To accomplish their independence is not quite so easy as to declare it, the British philosopher Jeremy, Jeremy Bentham haughtily remarked. But then a series of events forever changed the course of modern history. The stunning Patriot victory at the Battle of Saratoga in October. The drafting of the Articles of Confederation in November that for all its limitations further demonstrated the political resolve of the Americans. And most of all, the alliance signed with France in February 1778, which provided the Patriots with the resources, military assistance, and naval power that ultimately tipped the scales in their favor. There are comparable Saratoga moments in other crises in U.S. history, as we shall see. These contingent moments played out in their own distinctive ways, but are joined by a common denominator that has been curiously forgotten in our age of U.S. global power. Foreign states and people have played decisive roles in the critical moments of American history. As we make our way through our own era of global instability, in an unprecedentedly interconnected world, there's perhaps no more important lesson from the past to keep in mind. Crisis may beget crisis, Franklin Roosevelt said, as his administration transitioned from battling the Great Depression to entering the Second World War. But the progress underneath does not wholly halt. It does go forward, end quote. Like so many of Roosevelt's public statements, this one reveals the truth even as it conceals others. The United States came out on the other side of its great, greatest crises as a stronger and more efficiently organized nation, as Roosevelt suggested. The process of mobilizing resources to counter threats catalyzed innovations in political economy, such as the creation of a national financial system during the Civil War, and the economic reforms of the New Deal. The, the book is A Nation Forged by Crisis by Jay Sexton.
one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. It's 34 minutes past the hour. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on this uh, beautiful Friday afternoon. Uh, Ken in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. Hey, Ken, you had an answer to uh, what happens if D.C. becomes a state? Yeah, so the House of Representatives has 435 voting members plus five delegates. So if D.C. became a state and theoretically Helen Norton Holmes became a representative, then that would have to reapportion from somewhere else unless Congress increased the number of, you know, voting representatives in the House, which is not likely, but I think it's worth D.C. becoming a state in order to pick up two seats in the Senate. Is that 435 members specified in, in an amendment to the Constitution? No, it, it's, in, it's in law. That the House of Rep- Congress decides how many representatives there are, so they can change that. So the, it just hasn't right, been so changed law, in a very long time. I forget what year. Right. So the law could be easily amended by whatever the law is that's granting D.C. statehood. Uh, is it reasonable to assume that that's already part of that law that's been introduced to grant D.C. statehood? Do you know, for that matter? That's a good. That's a good question. I don't know. I haven't read that, so I don't know. Yeah, that's because a good if question. It's, if it's just if it's just law, it can be easily amended by the new law, and yeah. I would think that you know they would simply say it's not four thirty five now; it's four thirty six, and yeah. uh, you know because it's not like they even have to bring in a new desk. You know, <laughs> she, she's already there. <laughs> so you have to get okay. but you have to get the Senate to go along with that. Yeah, no, I, well, yeah, that's the eternal, the eternal problem. Well, thank you for that, Ken. I, I appreciate the, no the, the clarity of that, uh, and thank you so much. Kevin in Santa Rosa, California, listening on KNYP. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hi there. Um, I'm calling in response to the person that was talking about uh, recessions being harvests. Um, for wealthy I came people, to the yes. same the same conclusion around a decade ago, and there's another piece to it. So I look at uh, every time there's a recession, that's a small harvest, like melting a cow. Then at the mm. end of the life, everyone's estate is drained through the healthcare system. And that's why they hate Obamacare so much, because it interferes with the harvest. That's interesting. Yeah, the healthcare yeah, system, you know. Yeah, most of our most of our medical expenses do occur in the last ten years of life, and mm-hmm. uh, and an awful lot of that is is arguably unnecessary. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, we we will spend mind-boggling amounts of money to extend life for a month or two in a way that might be excruciatingly painful. Um, I, I'm I'm a big fan, frankly, of death with dignity. We we have that here in Oregon. Um, a few other states have done that um, where, you know, and, and not doing, and in fact, Louise and I have living wills, you know, no hero, heroic measures, thank you very much. I watched that with my father, and I, I do not want that to happen to me. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah Kevin, here. you've expanded the, f- good, you've expanded the frame, and uh, it's excellent. It's, it's, uh, it's excellent. We need to have these conversations. You know, if we could get away from this continuous battle over, you know, the Republicans trying to prevent people of color from voting, the Republicans trying to make it a crime to protest, the Repo- you know, all, all this just like outrageous uh, uh, neo-fascist stuff that's going on and get back to reasonable debates about, you know, for example, you know, death with dignity. 
um, I would be so happy. There was a time in, you know, on this program when we used to have debates about those issues. And now it's like at the existential crisis, you know, is democracy going to survive in America? Not, not uh, you know, uh, you know, what should we do about, you know, things like, like, you know, whether or not a, a state is going to legalize doctor assisted suicide and things like that. Kevin, thank you. Thank you for uh, putting a punctuation mark on a, what I think thought was a very important conversation earlier in the day. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Hey, Tom, glad to hear your shoulders doing better. And, you know, my thoughts are with Alexei Navalny as well. Uh, Lawrence O'Donnell Amen. did a good piece on, on it last night. Yeah. Um, and, Tom, as you often do, I want to go back to 1980 uh, and the severe wrong turn we took as a country um, with a special focus on clean energy. Uh, in my opinion, uh, Jimmy Carter had put the oil cartels on alert when he gave that speech about putting America on a path to energy and independence. And, uh, you know, with stronger conservation efforts and developing alternatives such as solar. So, Tom, when Reagan won, not only did the banksters win, but the fossil fuel barons won, too. And the consequences. Oh, they heavily funded him. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah, and you know the consequences have led us not only to the climate brink, uh, but also you know you've talked a lot about cancer today. Imagine if we stopped allowing these oil and gas barons uh, uh, to poison our air and water. Um, you know, the Guardian had a piece this week, four out of 10 Americans live in counties with unhealthy air quality, with rising levels of ozone and particulate pollution. So, you know, let's stop. Yeah. As Charles said, let's stop su subsidizing these guys. Uh, Bernie and Ilan Omar, they have an end the polluter welfare act that's going to save 150 billion over 10 years. And, you know, we also need to shut down these uh, illegal pipelines like the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, and the uh, tar sands pipelines from Canada, lines three and five. And Ilan Omar also, uh, along with Rashida Tlaib, they've called out President Biden to do just that um, and to do uh, while there are thorough environmental impact reviews being conducted. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that, Tom? I'm, I'm gung-ho in favor of all those things. Uh, I, the, my recollection is that we know that somewhere between 10 and 20,000 Americans get cancer every year just because of tailpipe emissions, just because of the, the poisons that are coming out of our car engines. If we convert it to electric, that becomes zero. Um, and, and that's probably a radical undercount. I mean, that, that's, uh, and that number is probably a decade or so old. Um, so yeah, there, there is so much that we, that we could be doing that would not only improve the qual our quality of life, it would improve our independence. We would no longer have to suck up to Saudi Arabia and go along with their stupid wars. There are, there are so many good things that will come out of, uh, this, this, uh, uh, infrastructure bill or the American Jobs Act, I think is what Joe Biden is calling it these days, President Biden. Uh, and, and we've got to get this thing through the Senate. I mean, we've just got it. We've got to get this thing through the Senate. We've got to be leaning on this and, and leaning on it hard. Go ahead. And, you know, the, those health costs are never even figured into, uh, you know, what, what these uh, oil and gas companies are costing us as a society. I mean, you know, right. we, we've... Or loss of productivity. Not, the loss of productivity, the eco side, you know, yeah, Greg Palson earlier talking about how, you know, large parts of the Gulf of Mexico were killed out of lies and greed by BP. Uh, I mean, you know, it's just it, it, it's it's just a disgrace that we really need to take a stand on um, with Earth Day having been this week. So thank you for all your efforts, Tom. 
Thank you, Jeff. And thanks for, for putting a punctuation mark, you know, at the end of that one. Uh, spot on. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's up? Hey, happy Friday, Tom. I, um, somebody mentioned something earlier, uh, not my reason for calling, but real quickly. On the gun thing with uh, protesters being mowed down by a car, um, mm -hmm. The moment anybody does that, that's felony murder because the protest is the underlying first crime. So make sure nobody thinks that that's a way to defend yourself as a protester. They'll hang you twice. But mm -hmm. um, the reason I'm calling is the Liz Cheney issue. And mm -hmm. this flurry of quotes coming from, you know, a couple of different members of her uh, GQP. Um, this is really the this is the the, the full admission of, you know, among many of saying the quiet part out loud and that we have, you know, confirmed racism coming out of that party at high velocity and volume. Uh, we've got all kinds of misogyny from it. And this is now placism, as in know your place. Um, and they're kind of, they're being dismissive of her in a way that, uh, I mean, her name uh, and her father means uh, party money, keeping certain old Republicans willing to vote and donate. But the way they're treating her, um, and she's a lone voice of reason in so much. But this is this is it. There's there's no reason for any person observing America or participating in it to to hold any understanding other than this is a uh, it's a lockstep genuflect obedience to the czar party and the czar has been toppled it's amazing they're, they're still genuflecting before this guy yeah, yeah so right before the, the the previous guy yeah and uh, you know liz cheney and now uh increasingly lisa murkowski and occasionally mitt romney i mean there are a few uh kind of semi-profiles in courage although they're not really standing up they're standing up against stuff that is like obscene but right. they're not standing up yeah, for stuff that's yeah. reasonable. And uh, but the blowback um, is really the thing to pay attention to more than the initial act by you know Romney and Cheney being willing to vote for impeachment and stuff, where the case was abundantly clear it should have been a vote for it. But the the blowback and the degree to which and how it manifests really does show uh, just a. Uh, just yeah. zero respect for her as an elected representative uh, with a constituency that might be different from a Q constituency. And the way they're mistreating her, I mean, believe me, I don't want to be defending anyone related to Dick Cheney. But, uh, yeah. you know, just on the behavior uh, I alone. It's I think of, that... I think that November of 2022 is like, what, 16, 17 months from now? It's going to tell us an awful lot. And we're going to learn an awful lot from that election, Eric. And, um, I, I, you know, I'm keeping my eyes open, but you're spot on. The, the Republican Party is no longer a legitimate Republican Party. It is a white nationalist movement, a white supremacist movement. Eric, thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And I would add a male white supremacist and a male supremacist movement, thus Liz Cheney and Lisa Murkowski being the ones that they're going after. And welcome back. Uh, let's
Let's see here. Howard in New York City. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi. Uh, I wanted to talk about world-class uh, education for free. You touched on it a little bit, but let me give you some examples. Uh, in okay. the 1950s, I know I'm an old guy, um, I went to Brooklyn College absolutely free. And Brooklyn College graduated literally over 10 years, tens of thousands of doctors and lawyers and accountants and businessmen, on and on. And in 1959, Brooklyn College beat uh, MIT in the National Chess Championships. We beat Princeton in the National Bridge Championships. Anybody wow. or many people that couldn't afford Ivy Leagues went into Brooklyn College. And just one last example, my own example, I ended up with a bachelor's, a BS from Brooklyn College. And when I went into career, I was a banker and competed for the presidency of banks, my BS Brooklyn College against Ivy League MBAs three times, and I never lost. So Brooklyn College back in the 50s was one hell of a place, and that was all free. I didn't pay a dime. So what happened to it, Howard? Well, first of all, let me give you an example. Um, today, when I was back there, um, the president of Brooklyn College was making $60,000. Today, they make $380,000. I mean, wherever they got the funding, probably from real estate taxes in New York City, they, it was top class. It was first. I mean, every, my, both my parents were teachers, graduated from Brooklyn College. In those days, teachers made $18,000, which was enough to take two uh, months, July and August, off. Um, it was a government funded, not the government, it was New York City funding. They cut down on that, and every year, people became more and more greedy, and then all the good teachers stopped coming. We had first, first-class teachers. They couldn't make more than $14,000, $15,000. So 10 years later, that was, they didn't get many raises. They couldn't afford to live off a teacher's salary. So you went off, uh, you went from a, a world-class teachers to not world-class teachers. Let me put so it is that. Brooklyn, Brooklyn College is no longer free? Oh, no. It's uh, probably, uh, geez, I'd have to guess. I haven't looked at that. I just looked up the president's salary, and to get three mm -hmm. hundred seventy thousand compared to what it was, 60000 in the 50s, is yeah. just disgraceful. Yeah. Although there has been inflation, but I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I, you know, the, this is the, the war on public education was declared in 1981. That was, that was Ronald Reagan's thing. You know, that's why he put Bill Bennett in charge of the Education Department, uh, who was that generation's version of Betsy DeVos. And, uh, you know, we're just the, the, the consequence of that is that, you know, now we have a couple of generations that don't have good civics education, don't have good critical thinking skills. Um, our public schools have been gutted. Our university system has been gutted. Uh, we are falling behind the world, behind the rest of the world, in things like patents and innovation and invention and new businesses. And, and, and I, you know, you, you can track it all back to Reagan. I mean, I, my wife makes this joke. She's going to put it started with Reagan you, on my tombstone. It's true. One more, one more quick example. One more quick example. Yeah, five seconds. People in, yeah, people in Brooklyn College got double 800s on their SATs and went to Brooklyn as opposed to Ivy League. You know what it is to get there you go. 800? Yeah, no, it's very hard. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Howard, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you. We'll be right back.
moments in which the very existence of our nation was up for grabs. This is the essence of crisis. The world turned upside down. The known replaced by the unknown. Panic reigning as people struggle to maintain their balance and shifts in the very ground beneath their feet. It came with a speed and ferocity to left men dazed, New York Times correspondent Elliot Bell wrote of Wall Street's catastrophic collapse in October of 1929. Quote, the market seemed like an insensate thing that was wreaking a wild and pitiless revenge upon those who thought to master it, end quote. Crises are contagious, spreading like viruses from one realm to another. It's not without reason that the word crisis was associated with medical conditions and health scares in the 19th century. Each of the periods under consideration in this book were less a singular crisis than a set of interlinked crises. A political crisis could trigger an economic panic, which in turn could intensify social conflict, and so on. As these pandemics spread through the body politic, crisis itself was normalized, becoming an almost accepted characteristic of an age. Just as foreign crises have spread to the United States, domestic ones have spilled across its borders, unsettling foreign countries and peoples, as well as reconfiguring America's connections to the world. Consider the fateful winter of secession that followed the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln. The crisis over slavery that divided the Union into warring sections that led to a series of sharp reversals in America's position in the global system. The foreign capital that had rushed into the roaring American economy in the preceding decades suddenly began to flee. Indeed, more capital left the United States in 1860 to 1862 than came into it. Also a once-in-a-century occurrence. One of the world's most valuable commodities and America's largest export, southern cotton, was confined to the ports of the Confederacy as a result of Richmond's ill-fated diplomatic strategy, leading to unemployment and social unrest in the British textile town of Lancashire. The most unexpected reversal was how the national security that, that the United States had attained after the war against Mexico in the 1840s was suddenly imperiled, with European powers encroaching once again upon the Western Hemisphere. Meanwhile, the Confederate emissaries across the Atlantic in search of alliance were in search of alliance with Britain. Our country, Secretary of State William Seward lamented in early 1861, after having expelled all European powers from the continent, now threatened to relapse into an aggravated, aggravated form of its colonial experience, and like India, Turkey, China, and Italy, become the theater of transatlantic intervention and rapacity. A wider view of American history that looks beyond the nation's borders brings into focus not only the migration patterns, economic flows, and international rivalries that have connected the United States to the world, but also those rare moments in which the very in existence of the nation was in question. Perhaps none was more pregnant with implications than the autumn of 1877, when the fate of the Patriots' bid for independence hung in the balance. Having proclaimed their independence to the world the previous 4th of July, their cause had stalled on the battlefield and in the diplomatic courts of the old world. I think the game is pretty near up, Washington privately confessed at year's end. To accomplish their independence is not quite so easy as to declare it, the British philosopher Jeremy, Jeremy Bentham haughtily remarked. But then a series of events forever changed the course of modern history. The stunning Patriot victory at the Battle of Saratoga in October. The drafting of the Articles of Confederation in November that, for all its limitations, further demonstrated the political resolve of the Americans. And most of all, the alliance signed with France in February 1778, which provided the Patriots with the resources, military assistance, and naval power that ultimately tipped the scales in their favor. There are comparable Saratoga moments in other crises in U.S. history, as we shall see. 
these contingent moments played out in their own distinctive ways, but are joined by a common denominator that has been curiously forgotten in our age of U.S. global power. Foreign states and people have played decisive roles in the critical moments of American history. As we make our way through our own era of global instability, in an unprecedentedly interconnected world, there's perhaps no more important lesson from the past to keep in mind. Crisis may beget crisis, Franklin Roosevelt said, as his administration transitioned from battling the Great Depression to entering the Second World War. But the progress underneath does not wholly halt. It does go forward, end quote. Like so many of Roosevelt's public statements, this one reveals the truth even as it conceals others. The United States came out on the other side of its great, greatest crises as a stronger and more efficiently organized nation, as Roosevelt suggested. The process of mobilizing resources to counter threats catalyzed innovations in political economy, such as the creation of a national financial system during the Civil War, and the economic reforms of the New Deal. The, the book is A Nation Forged by Crisis by Jay Sexton. podcast recaps are shown it's available wherever fine podcasts are found and we have the full three-hour podcast available over at tomhartman.com if you want to really support our program it's 34 minutes past the hour welcome back tom hartman here with you on this uh, beautiful friday afternoon uh ken in niagara falls ontario canada hey ken you had an answer to uh, what happens if dc becomes a state yeah, so the House of Representatives has 435 voting members plus five delegates. So if D.C. became a state and theoretically Helen Norton Holmes became a representative, then that would have to reapportion from somewhere else unless Congress increased the number of, you know, voting representatives in the House, which is not likely. But I think it's worth D.C. becoming a state in order to pick up two seats in the Senate. Is that 435 members specified in, in an amendment to the Constitution? No, it, it's, in, it's in law. that the House Rep- Congress decides how many representatives there are, so they can change that. So the, it just hasn't right, been so changed law, in a very long time. I forget what year. Right. So the law could be easily amended by whatever the law is that's granting D.C. statehood. Uh, is it reasonable to assume that that's already part of that law that's been introduced to grant D.C. statehood? Do you know, for that matter? That's a good. That's a good question. I don't know. I haven't read that, so I don't know. Yeah, because if it's, if it's just if it's just law, it can be easily amended by the new law, and yeah. I would think that you know they would simply say it's not four thirty five now; it's four thirty six, and yeah. uh, you know because it's not like they even have to bring in a new desk. You know, <laughs> she, she's already there. <laughs> so you have to get okay. you have to get the Senate to go along with that. Yeah, no, I, well, yeah, that's the eternal, the eternal problem. Well, thank you for that, Ken. I, I appreciate the, no the, the clarity of that, uh, and thank you so much. Kevin in Santa Rosa, California, listening on KNYP. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hi there. Um, I'm calling in response to the person that was talking about uh, recessions being harvests. Um, for wealthy I came people, to the yes. same the same conclusion around a decade ago, and there's another piece to it. So I look at uh, every time there's a recession, that's a small harvest, like melting a cow. Then at the mm. end of the life, everyone's estate is drained through the health care system. And that's why they hate Obamacare so much, because it interferes with the harvest. 
that's interesting. Yeah, the healthcare yeah, system. You know, yeah, most of our most of our medical expenses do occur in the last ten years of life, and mm-hmm. uh, and an awful lot of that is is arguably unnecessary. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, we we will spend mind-boggling amounts of money to extend life for a month or two in a way that might be excruciatingly painful. Um, I, I'm I'm a big fan, frankly, of death with dignity. We we have that here in Oregon. Um, a few other states have done that, um, where you know, and and not doing. And, and in fact, Louise and I have living wills. You know, no hero, heroic measures. Thank you very much. I watched that with my father, and I, I do not want that to happen to me. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah Kevin, here. you've expanded the f- good. You've expanded the frame, and uh, it's excellent. It's it's uh, it's excellent. We need to have these conversations. You know, if we could get away from this continuous battle over, you know, the Republicans trying to prevent people of color from voting, the Republicans trying to make it a crime to protest, the Repo- you know, all, all this just like outrageous uh, uh, neo-fascist stuff that's going on and get back to reasonable debates about, you know, for example, you know, death with dignity. Um, I would be so happy. There was a time in, you know, on this program when we used to have debates about those issues. And now it's like at the existential crisis, you know, is democracy going to survive in America? Not, not, uh, you know, uh, you know, what should we do about, you know, things like, like, you know, whether or not a, a state is going to legalize doctor assisted suicide and things like that. Kevin, thank you. Thank you for uh, putting a punctuation mark on a, what I think thought was a very important conversation earlier in the day. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Hey, Tom, glad to hear your shoulders doing better. And, you know, my thoughts are with Alexei Navalny as well. Uh, Lawrence O'Donnell Amen. did a good piece on, on it last night. Yeah. Um, and, Tom, as you often do, I want to go back to 1980 uh, and the severe wrong turn we took as a country um, with a special focus on clean energy. Uh, in my opinion, uh, Jimmy Carter had put the oil cartels on alert when he gave that speech about putting America on a path to energy and independence. And, uh, you know, with stronger conservation efforts and developing alternatives such as solar. So, Tom, when Reagan won, not only did the banksters win, but the fossil fuel barons won, too. And the consequences. Oh, they heavily funded him. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah, and you know the consequences have led us not only to the climate brink, uh, but also you know you've talked a lot about cancer today. Imagine if we stopped allowing these oil and gas barons uh, uh, to poison our air and water. Um, you know, The Guardian had a piece this week, four out of ten Americans live in counties with unhealthy air quality with rising levels of ozone and particulate pollution. So, you know, let's stop, yeah, as Charles said, let's stop su- subsidizing these guys. Uh, Bernie and Ilan Omar, they have an End the Polluter Welfare Act that's going to save $150 billion over 10 years. And, you know, we also need to shut down these uh, illegal pipelines like the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, and the uh, tar sands pipelines from Canada, lines three and five. And Ilan Omar also, uh, along with Rashida Tlaib, they've called out President Biden to do just that um, and to do uh, while there are thorough environmental impact reviews being conducted. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that, Tom? I'm, I'm 
gung ho in favor of all those things. Uh, I, the my recollection is that we know that somewhere between ten and twenty thousand Americans get cancer every year, just because of tailpipe emissions, just because of the the poisons that are coming out of our car engines. If we convert it to electric, that becomes zero, um, and and that's probably a radical undercount. I mean that that's uh, and that number is probably a decade or so old. Um, so yeah, there there is so much that we that we could be doing that would not only improve the qual- our quality of life, it would improve our independence. We would no longer have to suck up to Saudi Arabia and go along with their stupid wars. There are, there are so many good things that will come out of uh, this this uh, uh, infrastructure bill or the American Jobs Act. I think is what Joe Biden is calling it these days, President Biden. Uh, and and we've got to get this thing through the Senate. I mean, we've just got it. We've got to get this thing through the Senate. We've got to be leaning on this and, and leaning on it hard. Go ahead. And you know, the, those health costs are never even figured into uh, you know what what these uh, oil and gas companies are costing us as a society. I mean, you know, right. we we or loss of productivity. Not- the loss of productivity, the eco side, you know, yeah, Greg Palson earlier talking about how, you know, large parts of the Gulf of Mexico were killed out of lies and greed by BP. Uh, I mean, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, it's just a disgrace that we really need to take a stand on, um, with Earth Day having been this week. So thank you for all your efforts, Tom. Thank you, Jeff. And thanks for, for putting a punctuation mark, you know, at the end of that one. Uh, spot on. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's up? Hey, happy Friday, Tom. I, um, somebody mentioned something earlier, uh, not my reason for calling, but real quickly. On the gun thing with uh, protesters being mowed down by a car, um, mm-hmm. the moment anybody does that, that's felony murder because the protest is the underlying first crime. So make sure nobody thinks that that's a way to defend yourself as a protester. They'll hang you twice. But um, the reason I'm calling is the Liz Cheney issue and this flurry of quotes coming from, you know, a couple of different members of her uh, GQP. Um, this is really the this is the, the, the full admission of, you know, among many of saying the quiet part out loud. And that we have, you know, confirmed racism coming out of that party at high velocity and volume. Uh, we've got all kinds of misogyny from it. And this is now placism, as in know your place. Um, and they're kind of, they're being dismissive of her in a way that, uh, I mean, her name uh, and her father means uh, party money, keeping certain old Republicans willing to vote and donate. But the way they're treating her, um, and she's a lone voice of reason in so much, but this is... This is it. There's there's no reason for any person observing America or participating in it to to hold any understanding other than this is a uh, it's a lockstep genuflect obedience to the czar party. And the czar has been toppled. It's amazing. They're, they're still genuflecting before this guy. Yeah, yeah. So right before the, the the previous guy, yeah, and uh, you know Liz Cheney and now uh, increasingly Lisa Murkowski, and occasionally Mitt Romney. I mean, there are a few uh, kind of semi profiles in courage, although they're not really standing up. They're, they're standing up against stuff that is like obscene, but right. they're not standing yeah, up for stuff that's yeah. reasonable. 
And uh, but the blowback um, is really the thing to pay attention to more than the initial act by you know Romney and Cheney being willing to vote for impeachment and stuff. Where the case was abundantly clear, it should have been a vote for it. But the the blowback and the degree to which and how it manifests really does show uh, just a. Uh, just zero respect for her as an elected representative uh, with a constituency that might be different from a Q constituency. And the way they're mistreating her, I mean, believe me, I don't want to be defending anyone related to Dick Cheney. But, uh, yeah. you know, just on the behavior no, I alone. I think of- that... I think that November of 2022 is like, what, 16, 17 months from now? It's going to tell us an awful lot. And we're going to learn an awful lot from that election, Eric. And, um, I, I, you know, I'm keeping my eyes open, but you're spot on. The, the Republican Party is no longer a legitimate Republican Party. It is a white nationalist movement, a white supremacist movement. Eric, thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And I would add a male white supremacist and a male supremacist movement, thus Liz Cheney and Lisa Murkowski being the ones that they're going after. And welcome back. Uh, Let's see here. Howard in New York City. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi. Uh, I wanted to talk about world-class education for free. You touched on it a little bit, but let me give you some examples. Uh, In the 1950s, I know I'm an old guy, um, I went to Brooklyn College absolutely free. And Brooklyn College graduated literally over 10 years, tens of thousands of doctors and lawyers and accountants and businessmen, on and on. And in 1959, Brooklyn College beat... uh, MIT in the National Chess Championships. We beat Princeton in the National Bridge Championships. Anybody or many people that couldn't afford Ivy League went into Brooklyn College. And just one last example, my own example, I ended up with a bachelor's of BS from Brooklyn College. And when I went into career, I was a banker and competed for the presidency of banks my BS Brooklyn College against Ivy League MBAs three times, and I never lost. So Brooklyn College back in the 50s was one hell of a place, and that was all free. I didn't pay a dime. So what happened to it, Howard? Well, first of all, let me give you an example. Um, Today, when I was back there, um, the president of Brooklyn College was making $60,000. Today, they make $380,000. I mean, wherever they got the funding, probably from real estate taxes in New York City, it was top class. It was first. I mean, every my both my parents were teachers, graduated from Brooklyn College. In those days, teachers made $18,000, which was enough to take two uh, months, July and August, off. Um, it was a government-funded, not the government, it was New York City funding, they cut down on that, and every year, people became more and more greedy, and then all the good teachers stopped coming. We had first, first-class teachers. They couldn't make more than $14,000, $15,000. So 10 years later, that was they didn't get many raises. They couldn't afford to live off a teacher's salary. So you went, off, uh, you went from a, a world-class teachers 
coverage is no longer free? Oh, no. It's uh, probably, uh, geez, I'd have to guess. I haven't looked at that. I just looked up the president's salary, and to get three mm-hmm. hundred seventy thousand compared to what it was, 60000 in the 50s, is yeah. just disgraceful. Yeah. Although there has been inflation, but I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I, you know, the, this is the, the war on public education was declared in 1981. That was, that was Ronald Reagan's thing. You know, it's why he put Bill Bennett in charge of the Education Department, uh, who was that generation's version of Betsy DeVos. And, uh, you know, we're just the, the, the consequence of that is that, you know, now we have a couple of generations that don't have good civics education, don't have good critical thinking skills. Um, our public schools have been gutted. Our university system has been gutted. Uh, we are falling behind the world, behind the rest of the world, in things like patents and innovation and invention and new businesses. And, and, and I, you know, you, you can track it all back to Reagan. I mean, I, my wife makes this joke. She's going to put it started with Reagan you, on my tombstone. It's true. One more, one more quick example. One more quick example. Yeah, five seconds. People in Brooklyn, yeah, people in Brooklyn College got double 800s on their SATs and went to Brooklyn as opposed to Ivy League. You know what it is to get there you double go. 800s? Yeah, no, it's very hard. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Howard, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. It's great to hear from you. We'll be right back.